So how many folks have spent probably longer than they'd like to admit watching basketball this week? You don't have to show your hands, but uh, a lot of Americans do. Last year, the NCAA men's championship game for basketball was the 21st most watched program on TV. This month, it's estimated that close to 40 million Americans will fill out a March Madness bracket. And it's a lot of fun, right? It kind of gives you a rooting interest. Uh, we love March Madness for uh, the buzzer beaters, for the upsets. You can have all kind of crazy ways to pick your team, like which mascot would beat up the other one in a fight. That's how some people do it. Uh, the March Madness is a good time. So now I've got a couple of rhetorical questions for you. Do you think God knows in advance who is going to win the March Madness tournament? Does God know the outcome in advance? This rhetorical now. This is, this is funny, the first two services too. This is called omniscience, right? That, that God is all knowing. Now, a different question is, do you believe that God determines the outcome of the March Madness tournament? That's called omnipotence, that God is all-powerful. And so is there a difference between God knowing and God determining the outcome? How we answer each of these questions will say a lot about the way that we view God and could even affect and does affect how we live our lives. Some folks would ascribe to what's called open theology, meaning that the future is unknown even to God, that it's un uncertain and that God finds out the open future as we do. Personally, I can't worship a God that I could beat in a March Madness pool. I just, I can't do it. But I also can't worship a God who would make us like robots who only do what we're programmed. So what about you? My guess is whether we would name it or not, most people have a conception of God that falls along the spectrum of emphasizing these two qualities, sovereignty and agency. Sovereignty meaning God's supreme rule over the universe. So when people say God is in control, they're talking about God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is often in tension with human agency. Uh, some might call it free will, human agency, that humans act of their own free will, uncontrolled and uncoerced. And so what's your picture of God in your mind? Is God like a chess master controlling all the pieces? Or do you see God kind of sitting back eating popcorn, finding out the future of human agency. I think that reality is somewhere in the middle. A holy mystery that, that kind of stands in between divine sovereignty and human agency. Coming out of the gate quick, aren't I, today? When I think about my own life of faith and, and my journey I believe there are, there are times when I did align with God's will, with God's plans, and there were plenty of times I did not. 
There were plenty of times where, especially in retrospect, I can see God working in my life in spite of my plans, in spite of my will. And so I wonder if the same is true for you. What I hope we'll learn together, what we'll discover together as we study God's word is that God adapts his plans, but his purpose stands. In the weeks leading up to Easter, we're focusing on the events of the crucifixion, Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross. We're calling it cross-examination. The cross is one of the most universally recognized symbols in the whole world. But do we understand its meaning? Lent is a word that means spring season. And Lent is the six weeks leading up to Easter. And so that's what we'll be studying together all the way up to Jesus, the celebration of Jesus' resurrection. And my prayer would be that we would emerge from Lent and celebrate Easter with a deeper grasp of the cross's brutality, of its beauty, significance, and meaning. In, in a courtroom scenario, the cross-examination is the, que the questioning of a witness who's already testified to verify that their testimony is credible. And so each week in this series, cross-examination, we're gonna be looking at a question. And today's is, was Jesus destined for the cross in advance by God's will? The Bible describes a long arc of events that lead up to Jesus' life and death and resurrection. The fancy theological term for that is called salvation history. That Jesus was the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. And here's a little clue, you know I'm serious. We got the King James version up there. That's how you're, oh, buckle up. We're going King James. The lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. Scripture confirms that the events of the cross were foretold and that the cross is crucial to our faith. Paul, author of a lot of the second half of the Bible called the New Testament, Paul wrote this, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, colon, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And so this concept is central to our faith. It's of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Jesus himself, while appearing somewhat incognito to two men traveling to a town called Emmaus, the road to Emmaus. Uh, if you stop by my office sometime, I have a picture of that, a painting that used to hang in my dad's office, hanging up of the road to Emmaus. And while Jesus was traveling with these people, he explained to them, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So of the many links we could study that connect the prophecies about Jesus to the events of his life, there's one that's especially significant because Jesus makes the link himself. He says these words from the cross, from Matthew 27, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now this phrase which Jesus used in Hebrew not only speaks to the moment of his suffering on the cross, it's also a quotation of Psalm 22, which has an identical first line. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, 
but I find no rest. And Psalm 22 is a prime example of the dual significance of these scriptures. Because for the Jewish hearers that actually heard Jesus say those words, they would have, that would have sparked their memory of Psalm 22. It's like if I say amazing grace, you can say how sweet this is, right? It's just similar deal. The original hearers would have hearkened back to this psalm. Now for us reading it much later, it retroactively confirms what was written to point forward to Jesus as a crucified Messiah. Now a lot of folks have heard of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Uh, you may not have known that's what it was, but you saw the cross stitch hanging up on your grandmama's wall. Right? Just world hall of fame, Psalm 23. But not as many people talk about the one right before it. It's just a page away. Did you know that in Psalm 22 is contained all of this imagery and all of these things that Jesus would experience? We're gonna contrast Psalm 22 with what we read in the gospels about Jesus and the crucifixion. And I'm very proud to tell you, I know how to use the Microsoft table function in Word. There it is. <laughs> Psalm 22, seven. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. In Matthew 27, we read those who passed by, Jesus hurled insults at him, shaking their heads. Psalm 22, verse eight. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And in Mark 15, we read, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. The crowds mocked at him. Psalm 22, verse 15, my mouth is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. And in John 19, we read later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that the scripture might, would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And they offered him the sour sponge of vinegar. Psalm 22, verse 16, Dogs surround me, a pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Now the translation of pierced is debated, but when rendered this way, it's an obvious connection to crucifixion. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Psalm 22, 18, they divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garments. And in Luke 23, we read, Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. So many of the gruesome details about crucifixion are contained in Psalm 22. We read on, all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. So while there were many cultures who practiced crucifixion, it was the Romans who perfected it as a means of criminal and political deterrence. Psalm 22 predates Jesus' crucifixion by centuries, but it points forward to the suffering that he would endure. And so with so many connections laid out in advance, I think it's an important question to ask, was the cross God's plan or people's plan? And I believe it was a mysterious combination, that holy mystery 
between divine sovereignty and human agency. I think we see a great picture of these two things in the Bible. In Acts 2, Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, is giving one of the first sermons in Christian history. And he says of Jesus, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to a cross. Do you see how they're both contained? And was, was there a possibility, was there a way for Jesus to be savior without being crucified? I think that's impossible to know, but we do see Jesus lamenting that people refuse to receive him. He said this looking over the city of Jerusalem on his journey there. This is from Matthew 23. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. So to paraphrase another author we'll hear from later, God's original will was that men would follow Jesus, not kill him. And Jesus seems to confirm that as he looked over the city. This image of a a mother hen gathering her chicks together. It it seems to me that this is an agonizing thing for Jesus. As as though the subtext of what he's saying was it, it didn't have to be like this. But Jesus' enemies were not willing. So sometimes, and if we're honest, many times, our will is in conflict with God's will. And so this begs the question, can people thwart God's plans? So I want to come back to the Pharisees that Peter described. These were Jesus' opponents. Peter called them wicked men who put Jesus to death by nailing him to a cross. But before the events of the crucifixion, long before that, the author of Luke says of the Pharisees, the Pharisees and the experts in religious law rejected God's plan for them. For they had refused John's baptism. Now the John referred to here is John the Baptist. And so before studying for this message, I never considered this. That God's plan was that the Pharisees would repent and be baptized instead of condemn and have Jesus crucified. And so despite human agency, like the Pharisees choosing to kill Jesus instead of follow him, God's purpose was carried out through the wicked method that people chose. And so was Jesus destined for the cross in advance by God's will? Yes. I'll say it plainly. Yes. God's foreknowledge of human agency, along with his ultimate sovereignty, they combine in a holy mystery to use what people meant for evil and the elimination of Jesus to bring about hope and redemption. Now that is about the most theologically dense sentence I've ever tried to construct. So I'm gonna say it again just for me. Just for me, I'm gonna get some more mileage out of this thing. God's foreknowledge of human agency along with his ultimate sovereignty combine in a holy mystery to use what people meant for evil to bring about hope and redemption. God's purpose was carried out. 
Because ultimately God's will is that God does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. We read that in 2 Peter. So friends, God adapts his plans, but his purpose stands. We've looked at Psalm 22 and how it describes uh, Jesus on the cross and his feeling of abandonment, of estrangement from God. But that's not how Jesus' story ended, and that's not how Psalm 22 ends. So let's keep reading. Don't just read the first part now. We got to see the whole thing that Jesus was pointing to. We'll pick it up in verse 22 again from Psalm 22. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. And that's how it ends. So when Jesus quotes the psalm from the cross, centuries of prophecies are fulfilled. No one could have imagined there at the cross what would happen in a short amount of time, that Jesus was to be resurrected, that God would do it. So friends, if today, if you feel estranged from God, if you feel that God is far from you, if the events of your life make you wonder, God, why have you left me all alone? Or if you turn on the news for seven seconds and look at all the horrible things going on in the world, you may have several excellent reasons to think, God, why have you abandoned us? The message of Psalm 22 is that even when it looks dire, God is not far from you. I wanted someone to tell you that your suffering is not a sign that God has abandoned you. God hears your cry for help. Jesus embodies this psalm on the cross and his subsequent resurrection is confirmation that God adapts his plans, but his purpose stands. I love how Isaiah puts it, the prophet. In chapter 46, we read, remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I will make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. I'd invite you to consider in your mind some things in your life that haven't gone as planned. That you would have never scripted for yourself. What are things as, as they lie in shambles that we can only give into God's hands and trust in his good purpose? Maybe it was a diagnosis. Maybe it was a failure. 
Maybe it was a choice you made or a choice someone else made that affected you. See, when we have a view of God of a chess master, then we have to reconcile things like, and some people believe this, but I don't believe that my parents got divorced in high school and that was part of God's plan for me to like learn a lesson. I think God's original will was for my parents to keep their covenant they made to each other and to God. But in the years after that, I saw restoration take place that I never would have thought possible. And so friends, there are times where all we can cling to is the holy mystery that despite human agency, God's sovereignty will accomplish God's purpose. And the cross shows us that God can take the worst of people's intentions and turn it into an instrument for good. That's why it's in the center of the room. That's why we wear it or, or, or adorn our bodies with it or tattoo. Now, you know, this was a big deal. At one point. That's why people get it tattooed, man. So it never leaves them. The cross is the ultimate sign of God's sovereignty. And so I don't mean for this whole message to be some kind of brain drain. To me, it really comes down to God saying, okay, you want to play it like that? Watch this. That's what I believe. That God can take the worst that people have to offer, the most evil of intentions, and use that as the occasion and the instrument to bring about new life. The new life that we saw proclaimed today in the waters of baptism. I love how Leslie Weatherhead paints this picture in his book, The Will of God. And so if you're wanting to go a little deeper into some of these thoughts and conversations, that's a book I'd recommend. The Will of God by Leslie Weatherhead. This book was originally a series of sermons that Weatherhead gave as a priest in Britain during World War II while they were being bombed relentlessly, trying to explain to his folks, where is God in all this? And he gives what I have found is the best analogy that encapsulates the holy mystery between our choices, our agency as humans, and God's divine sovereignty. This is what he says. The picture in my mind is that of children playing beside a tiny stream that runs down a mountainside to join a river in the valley below. Very little children can divert the stream and get great fun out of damming it up with stones and earth but not one of them ever succeeds in preventing the water from reaching the river at last. In regard to God, we are very little children. Though we may divert and hinder his purposes, I don't believe we ever finally defeat them. And though the illustration doesn't carry us so far, frequently our mistakes and sins are used to make another channel to carry the water of God's plans to the river of his purpose. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world, who took what people meant for death and brought about new life. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the chance to be together. 
and to hear your word and be reminded that our suffering does not mean that you have abandoned us. God, in this moment, help us know that you are near. We confess that too often our desires don't align with yours and our will is contrary to the good plans and purpose you have for us. And so God, we release all of that. God, we, we want to choose to desire the things that you want for us, not out of coercion or not simply to avoid punishment, but because we wanna please our loving father. That so often we don't know what to make of why this or that happens or why there's so much pain and evil in the world. And it seems often that you're just not around. Help us be reminded that you are God and there is no one like you. And that in your sovereignty, you work all things for good, especially when we cannot see or detect it. Help us to cling to your goodness. Amen.